The following is a breakout session from the 2014 Acts 29 conference in Dallas. Given the interactive nature of breakouts and Q&A, there may be extended periods of silence. Good morning. Uh, thanks for coming this morning. This is, uh, this is entitled, Why Every Pastor Should Be an Entrepreneur, but it's going to be way more, some of you were in my, uh, one of my sessions yesterday, it's going to be way more the what rather than the why. So um, let me start out, if you were in one of the sessions yesterday, I told you a little bit about who I was, but my name is Brian Howard, I live in Orange County, California, uh, south of Los Angeles. Uh, I have been with Acts 29 for almost 10 years, I planted Copper Hill Community Church in 2001, in uh, outside of Los Angeles, and uh, pastored that church for almost nine years. During that time, I served on the board of Acts 29 for a number of years and uh, served um, as the West Coast Regional Director of all of those West Coast Acts 29 states. We planted four churches out of our church during those nine years, and and during those years, I started to do a lot of coaching of pastors and church planters and... and um, Moved to Louisville, Kentucky for three years and, and uh, shared the pulpit with Daniel Montgomery at Sojourn Church. We split it up 26 and 26 for three years. And then during my time there, we started Sojourn Network. So some of you have heard of Sojourn Network. It's probably about 40 or 50 churches now. Originally, it was a part of Acts 29 and then, and then sort of split off from Acts 29 with a happy, happy split, not a bad split. And so Dave Harvey now leads that. Some of you have read books by Dave Harvey, Rescuing Ambition and that sort of stuff. So uh, two years ago, we moved back to Orange County, California, where we're from. And, uh, and basically what I do is I coach 30, I coach 30 leaders. It's how I spend the bulk of my time, including a lot of the leaders in Acts 29. So I coach all the regional directors. So I probably coach your regional director uh, in Acts 29 and coach Matt Adair and Steve Timmis and Josh Harris at Covenant Life Church, and I coached in Andy Stanley's, 10 of his top leaders for four years, and so do a lot of that. I recently agreed to take on a role as executive director of Acts 29 West, which is why it says that up there. So what that means is that I basically lead the, the, uh, the, all the West Coast states for Acts 29. They hired me to do that recently, and so we built a whole new plan um, for all of the Western United States Acts 29 Married, four kids. Two of my kids are teenagers. I have a son who's a high school basketball player. He's good. He's tall, taller than all of us. And so, and uh, that's it. So, uh, I really specialize. In fact, if you have not visited my blog, I don't make any money if you visit it. But it's a it's a resource of a lot of the work that I've done. I preached, was an executive pastor of a mega church for a lot of years, and then planted a church, and it grew to be a fairly large church. And so, a lot of the, a lot of the work that I've done over the years. I started writing down. Now, when I first, I don't know Tim Keller personally. I've met him a couple times and shaken his hand. But about 10 years ago, I heard Tim Keller speak at a conference. And I was blown away because I came out of the Baptist world, not the Presbyterian world. And I just sat there. You, you ever heard somebody speak before and you, you just, I just sat there just going, who is this guy, you know? And so I, you know, I went and waited in line to talk to him uh, after the conference and and I said, where can I learn more about all this stuff? And he said, remember, he looked at me and he said, well, I do have a body of work out there, so go find it. He was polite. I mean, he just said, there's a lot of stuff I've done. And so, you know, I found Joe Thorne's blog eight years ago and listened to everything I could by Tim Keller. 
And I say all that to say I've written much of what I have done. I write it for the Gospel Coalition, but I've also written much of what I've done on my blog, brianhowardblog.com. So a lot of what I'm going to discuss today um, I've written, and there's a lot of stuff on there because I write really fairly regularly. But if you're saying, hey, I want to get more of this sort of understanding of practically how I can think like an entrepreneur as a pastor, and this is what I coach people in. So I tend to specialize usually in larger church pastors who are trying to figure out um, organizationally, what do I do going forward? A lot of that. All right. I'm going to start by, uh, let me pray for us and just acknowledge God's presence here, and then uh, we'll, we'll go forward. God, I thank you that we have been able to be a part of this conference for the last couple of days. I thank you for the wealth of information that we have heard. I, th I thank you particularly for Steve Timmis's session day before yesterday at the end of the day where he really focused us spiritually. And, and even this morning as we hear practical things, I pray that this would all be in light of our desire to further the gospel, uh, to live in Christ, to acknowledge what you've done in the gospel. And so we want to be wise in planning and wise in thinking through how to spend time and wise in thinking through how to lead churches, but we don't want to forget the gospel in that either. And so God, this morning we build on that foundation knowing that what you've done for us in the person and work of Christ and, uh, and, and we simply want to live in light of that this morning. Give us wisdom in some of these practical areas, and I pray that this would be a growth experience. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a great book that I've read a couple times over the course of 10 years called The E-Myth Revisited. A lot of people know about that book, but a lot of you maybe have not actually read it. All right, But it's a really interesting concept, and I'm going to give you a quick summary and tell you how this applies to you as pastors and church planters. Okay, in the E-Myth Revisited, they talk about three roles in a business, all right? They talk about the entrepreneur, the manager, and the technician. So let's use a barber shop as an example, okay? So you look like you've, you probably, you, you all, you can all picture a barber shop in your mind. Okay, so the entrepreneur is the guy who decides to start the barber shop. He's got a vision for having a new barber shop. When I lived in Louisville, Kentucky, there was a place called Derby City Chop Shop down on Bardstown Road, and if you were really cool and wanted to spend $25 on a haircut. Young guys full of tattoos with immaculately crafted beards would cut your hair while you listen to punk rock music, all right? So, so I would take my boys there because you're supposed to be manly if you live in that place. And so I'm like, I'm, I'm going to take them and spend $25 on their haircuts. And, and uh, so the guy who started the barbershop had a vision for a particular kind of shop. And he started a barbershop. And then, and then so that's, that would be the guy that's the entrepreneur. Now, the manager makes sure that the shop gets open. Now, sometimes it's the same person in a small business. Make sure that the shop gets open, that the bills get paid, that, 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 that things get done around the shop, that sort of thing. And then the technician is the guy who is standing there cutting hair. All right? So you can picture the barber. He's the technician. He knows how to cut hair. He doesn't really want to own the shop necessarily. He doesn't want to pay the bills. He wants to cut hair. He's the technician. Now, 80% of small businesses fail in the first five years. Of those that survive, 80% of those fail in the next five years, and you can find even higher failure rates. And, and the reason is, is that most businesses are started by technicians, not entrepreneurs. Here's how it goes. I've been cutting hair here for the last three or four years. I could, I could run a shop as well as this guy can. Why shouldn't I start my own shop? And so you go out and start your own shop, and this exists across all industries. And by the way, it's how church planters think as well, so we'll talk about this in a second. So 
So then you go out and start your own shop. Little do you understand that the work of technician is completely different than the work of owner or entrepreneur. So in the E-Myth, he talks about a lady who loves to bake pies. She loves to bake pies, and so she starts a pie shop, and pretty soon she's showing up at 3 in the morning. She's baking pies, and by the time he finds her, she hates pies. She never wants to see a kitchen again. She doesn't really want it. All she really wanted to do was bake pies. Now, entrepreneur, technician, manager. Technicians work in the business, all right? The technician shows up. I get my hair cut at a great clips by my house. I go in there, and it's just right next to my house. So I go in there, and they're through, and it turns over all the time. You can't have a consistent haircut. Or we don't have a barber shop where I live, so I can't be manly like that. So, so, so I go in, and the technician shows up and cuts hair. That's what the technician does. All right, and then the person who manages makes sure that all the technicians show up. And then the entrepreneur is thinking about how can we make more money? How can we get more Facebook likes? How can we get the word out? What kind of campaign do we need to run now? Being a lead pastor, you're not all lead pastors, okay? But being a lead pastor is not only technician work, but entrepreneurial work. You can't only be a technician as a lead pastor. Now, I know the analogy breaks down at some point. You're going to say, I read Richard Baxter, and this doesn't sound very shepherding-oriented or whatever. But, but just, just stay with me for a second, all right? There's a lot of technical work in the work of ministry, we might say that technical work, are, are, it's, it's the work of shepherding. It's the work that we, we're doing the work of the ministry. We're, we're serving people, we're shepherding, we're loving people, we're counseling. Uh, and so when I think about the work of ministry, it's what, what, what guys have called working in the church. And I think of it as a lot, it's a lot of people time, which is good. We go into ministry, we, we want people time. We want to shepherd and counsel and those sorts of things. But but I'll use this sort of trite phrase, but time in the alone zone is entrepreneurial work. All right? Time in the alone zone. Now, by the way, going all the way back to the e-myth, a lot of churches are planted because you were a youth pastor and you realized this church is seeker-sensitive and I don't think I believe in seeker-sensitivity anymore because I went to seminary and took hermeneutics. This was my story, right? So I was 31 and my pastor's preaching the prayer of Jabez straight from the book. And I'm like, then I'm taking hermeneutics at Talbot Seminary, I'm, you know, and I'm like, man, there's got to be more to preaching than this. And, of, and then I was a youth pastor, a couple hundred kids in my youth ministry. I'm seeing kids come to Christ. Eventually you're like, but I only have them for, a, I only have them for an hour to a week. I've got to impact families. I've gotten the bug for leading people to Christ. Saw 100 kids come to Christ in our youth ministry over five or six years in Huntington Beach. Worked with street kids. And so, so I'm going to plant a church because I can do this better than he can, right? Now, I was the number two guy. I can do this. And so I went out, and I did the work of an evangelist, but I didn't realize so many churches are planted by guys that are technicians. They want to do the work of the ministry. And then you get out there, and you can't quite figure out, what do I do to move the church forward? I preach. I counsel. I study the Word. I spend time with people. But, but our church isn't moving forward. Now, the average person that hires me calls me, and usually it's a larger church pastor, and says to me, Brian, we've gotten our church to this point. We're just not sure where to go next. We're not sure where to go next. We don't know who to hire. We've got, you know, 15 pastors. We don't know how to organize everybody. We, and they're basically saying, what do we do to move this forward? And, and I go in and help them work on the church, not only in the church. Now, what I'm going to do for the rest of this session is I'm going to give you six 
different ways that you can work on the church, not only in the church. Now, this is kind of a flyover. My, ma- my main goal is to get you to buy into the concept that you need to work on the church, not only in the church. You, you get what I'm saying when I say that? All right? All right, so I'm going to give you six things, and then I've, I've written all of this as well. So I would encourage you to take notes, but if you miss something, I can point you to where I've written it, or I can send you an email. Okay, I'm, I'm pretty accessible. All right, so first, number one principle of working on the church is four hours weekly of vision time. Or maybe you read the post that I wrote on this. It was called a lead pastor's top three priorities. I'm going to unpack these in a second. And I know whenever you get practical in a theological world, people want to argue with you. I get bivocational pastors that will come up to me and say, but you don't understand I work 40 hours a week. I have an audience that, you know, I have a person in mind. I generally am writing to vocational pastors. And by the way, if you're not a lead pastor, or you're a youth pastor, or you're a worship leader, this definitely applies to you. All right, this applies to any ministry position, all right? Not necessarily the top three, but four hours weekly of vision time. So what I want to say to you is get this principle, and it will save you from years and years of trying to figure out what do we do uh, in terms of moving our church forward. I don't care if you're a youth pastor or what role you're in. You need to carve out four hours every single week and one time block, not like 30 minutes here or there, but one time block and say this four hours, I'm going to do no meetings. I'm not going to counsel anybody. I'm not going to work on email. I'm going to simply spend four hours working through where do we need to go as a church, all right? Now, what kinds of things should I do in this four-hour block of time versus not do? Here are the kinds of things you should not do. You shouldn't do meetings. You shouldn't do counseling. You shouldn't prepare your sermon. You shouldn't check email. You shouldn't put out urgent fires. You shouldn't do any of that. Now, what kinds of things should you do in this four-hour block of time? Here are the kinds of things you could put a hundred things in here, but these are the, the kinds of things, all right? Plan future sermon series. Work on improving something in your ministry. Uh, set goals and work on moving them forward. Brainstorm solutions to problems. Do demographic research on your neighborhood and figure out what are the, what, who are the, what are the idols of your neighborhood. Uh, do strategic planning. Write content that your church needs. Some of, us, some of us have been in the pulpit for five years and we've written nothing down. Like we haven't written a baptism policy. or we, Like write some of that content. What you're doing is you're working on where the church needs to go rather than constantly putting out fires. You get, you get what I'm saying there? there were, somebody calls you and they say, hey, can we meet on Tuesday morning? I have a dentist appointment. I got some free time. And you know I've got a four-hour block of time every single week where as a youth pastor... I'm basically saying, I'm going I'm to work on where our ministry needs to go. I'm going to think through, what do I want a senior in high school to look like by the time he or she graduates from high school? I'm just going to spend three or four hours and think about that. And I'm going to write it down. And then I'm, and then I'm going to, what do we need to start doing their freshman year? I have a son who's a sophomore in high school, a daughter who's an eighth grader. What, what do I need to start doing their freshman year to be moving them toward this? You know what? I need to develop an elder training process. People call me every day, all day, and say things like, what are, you, what are you doing to develop elders? How do I, and, I, and about 99% of the time, you just need to sit down and spend some time and think about it. You're smart enough to be where you are. You don't need a quick 20-minute answer from me. You need to carve out four hours every single week 
and say, I'm going to work on where the church needs to go. Now, I'm about to give you a bunch of stuff to do during that time uh, as well, but I, I wanted to briefly say, I will fight you over these three things. And this is based on 20 years of me preaching every Sunday and pastoring, and then right now I coach 30 leaders in America, you know, Russ Moore, Dr. Moore from the ERLC, you know, guys like that, and, and have coached them through this sort of stuff. So, so these, this is what I would say your top three priorities are as a pastor. And Richard Baxter people, you can put shepherding in 40 hours right at the end of this, okay? All right? Number one, and I just want to say this quickly. Number one, 10 hours weekly of sermon prep time. Now, I, this is like taking sermon prep in seminary. I'm going to give you a formula, and then you have to contextualize it based on who you are and the time you have and how God's wired you. But I'm just saying, generally speaking, if you're spending 20 hours a week on your sermon every week, and you're planting a church, or your church is less than 300 people, Tim Keller would say to you, an eight-hour sermon doesn't get much better in the next 12 hours. <laughs> That's what he would say. All right, so for some of you, and I've coached guys before, they'll turn in their, their schedule to me, and it's like sermon prep, 34 hours. And I want to say, do you have you ever met a non-Christian before? You should probably get out and meet somebody sometime, you know, because you're in there studying Hebrew. All right, all week. I know you went to seminary and you got Lagos, but you don't know how to get those pictures up there because none of us know how to use that. But So 10 hours weekly of sermon prep time. Now, some of you are planting churches and you're not carving out that time. So, And if you're a youth pastor or a different role, you have to contextualize this. But 12 hours weekly of leadership development time. And at the end, if you want me to unpack this a little bit, I will. But I, will, but, but I, but I, I would say you need to be spending 12 hours a week making sure that you're pouring into leaders. And the idea is, I don't know if you read Tim Ferriss's The 4-Hour Workweek, uh, about a third of the book is really good, and about two-thirds of the book is about how you can have a Lamborghini uh, if you, you know, so you don't have to work a lot. But he talks about, he, he, he gives you this little exercise and says, if you had a heart attack and the doctor said to you, you can work 10 hours a week, that's all. Five two-hour blocks of time, no more. What would you do with that time? So I put myself through that exercise sometimes, and I think, I would spend two hours with my assistant, Ben, who's right here. I would spend two hours with my assistant and launch him into 40 hours of work in that time. So that's how a leader thinks, right? So I would say you've got to constantly be equipping, training, developing the leaders that are pouring into everybody else in the church. All right, and then lastly, four hours weekly of vision time. So your first assignment out of, out of uh, and you can read some of this later, but your first assignment is to say, do I have a four-hour block of time every week? preferably in the morning, not the afternoon, because, I, I, you know, mornings are great, like, think in the morning, talk in the afternoon. You might say, not me, I don't wake up in the morning. Get a cup of coffee, don't schedule a morning meeting, and think in the morning, talk in the afternoon, because it takes more energy uh, to do this kind of work than it does to just have a meeting with somebody, unless it involves conflict. All right, so first thing is four hours weekly of vision time. All right, second, how can I work... As an entrepreneur, as a pastor, scheduled prayer time is number two. Now, if, I, if you were honest and I said to you guys, how many of you have scheduled prayer time where you are interceding for the people in your congregation, praying for the, praying for the people on your staff, praying through the list of people, your members? Uh, most of us would say we don't do that very well. And I would say this is working on the church. So how can I teach how to be an entrepreneur like, this isn't working in the church doing counseling. This is working on the church going, God, help us. 
So prayers working on the church, not in the church, if it isn't scheduled, you probably won't do it. So you actually have the luxury of scheduling prayer and getting paid to pray. I mean, think about that. You can, you can, you can get paid to pray for your congregation. And so I would say, you want, to, you want to think like an entrepreneur as a pastor? You want to be the barbershop owner, not the guy just cutting hair? Then schedule prayer time. Whatever ministry you're involved in, whatever you lead in your local church, schedule prayer time. You might go, man, I don't even know how to do that. We'll start with 30 minutes and have a list and go, I'm just going to pray. All right, number three, strategic planning. Uh, this is, I could do a session or two just on this. But one of the things that I would say you is a very good exercise, and I'll just walk you through it briefly, in terms of working on the church rather than in the church is, and I've coached lots and lots of guys through this. In fact, we, I just took Covenant Life through this whole process in Gaithersburg. It took us like 18 months. You know, I would fly out there once a quarter because they have a bunch of elders, and we would all meet together. And if you followed the news, they have quite a complicated situation out there. And so, so but, but, I would say what to do in your four hours. A lot of us do this when we plant churches, but have you done this lately? Thinking through, let's write a strategic plan for our ministry. Now, this is more of an over, this is more of a lead pastor kind of plan. Now, if you're a staff person at a church, I'll give you a plan next, all right? But here's four steps. And I would say how this looks is I usually encourage people to take a whole day away. Don't do this on a whiteboard with five elders in the room. You'll never get anywhere. No, it starts with one person. And probably you. Take a whole day away and walk through these four steps. Now, this should take you at least eight hours to do. Or you could do this. You could say, I'm going to do in my four-hour time block, I'm going to spend the next month, and I'm going to walk through this process. Here's what it looks like, all right? So, and you should have at least a page on identify need. All right, who, who are the people that we serve? Where are they? What are their needs? So when I went into Covenant Life and did this a couple years ago in Gaithersburg, they hadn't thought about this in 20 years. They feel like we show up, we preach, we're sovereign grace. They used to be anyways. And that's what we do. Well, have you thought through who are the people in your area? Who are they? What are their needs? Um, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but the idea of really drawing a circle around the geographic area and saying these are the people that we're trying to reach. Everybody thinks they're a regional church. We're going to talk about that in a minute too. But, but just thinking through who are the people that we serve in our ministry? And I, and I would say, like, this isn't just a statement or two. This is a page long. This is a page long. These are, this, these are our people in our area. This is, this is where they, they're hurting. This is how we can serve them. This is what the demographic data looks like, all right? Step two would be core values. And for those of you that use different language, if you come from SOMA, um, Sojourn, you might use the language of identities. If you have read Center Church, you might use the language of theological vision. I'm going to use core values for the moment, all right? So, and then I'll give you identities as well. So, but step two is what are the things that you're willing to die for as a church? What are the things that shape you as a church? Let me give you an example. This is a core value. I, I preach in Burbank every Sunday morning. It's a long story. I took over a church there recently, but, but, uh, but here's something that I'm willing to die for as a pastor. All right, I'm willing to die for community as the commitment and experience of every follower of Jesus Christ. Now, that, that's a core value to me. And it's, it's, it's all across the New Testament. It's not a core value to me. It's a core value to the New Testament. We should put it like that. There's no such thing, and you, you all believe this because you're in ministry. There's no such thing as a Sunday morning worship service. That's not New Testament Christianity. 
New Testament Christianity is one anothering, right? So community as the commitment and experience of every follower of Jesus Christ. That would be a core value. That's something that's going to shape the way that we do ministry. When guys that I coach call me and they say, hey, I just, I've had this conversation with two large church 829 pastors in the last month. Hey, we've got 55% of our people in groups. That's pretty good, right? And I, I say, no, that's not good. That's horrible. You, and I don't, I don't usually say it's horrible, but, I, but I'm, they don't pay me to tell them what they want to hear. I, I, I'm like, no, well, it all depends on what you believe. If you believe in community as the commitment and experience of every follower of Jesus Christ, you're not going to quit. You're going to go, that's not okay. Yeah, we've got a lot of college students. We'll find ways to get them integrated into community. Ten different ways to do it. So your core values, you're basically going to think through as a church, what are the four, five, six, not 15, four, five, six, seven things that we're saying we're willing to die for? Mission. Uh, you know, missional commitment. Individual, we, we're committed to live on mission both individually and collectively because the New Testament calls us to and so in your core values section of writing a plan for your church, you're going to basically say, what has the New Testament called us to? What kind of church has the New Testament called us to be? Now, I'm not a big fan of like your, your one-word purpose statement that uh, gets projected up on the front of the church that we could all take any one of those statements and use it, and it would probably be true in our own church. I think this is a little bit more, uh, this step two, it's a little bit more um, precise where you're saying, these are the things that we feel like God's called us to in the New Testament. Step three would be vivid description. In a vivid description, what you're basically saying is you're thinking five years down the road, and you're saying, what's the future going to look like as God works? Now, what, what the vivid description looks like is you're thinking, okay, if we, we, know the, we know who the people are that we're serving in our community, we know what our core values are. So as we live out our core values... What is our church going to look like five years from now as we live it out? Now, you write this in the present tense. We are a church that's known in our city for loving our city and the people in it. It's bullet point statements. Write 15 or 20 bullet point statements and say, this is a, this is a vision. If, if God works the way we pray that he will, you know, we've started three pregnancy centers in our city that have affected, that have affected 30 women. Whatever, whatever God has called you to. In a vivid description, you're basically sort of, and this isn't some sort of, sort of long-term just dream where we've reached 29,000 people and we've, you don't have to be crazy about it. It's just, what does the future look like as God works? And I, and I, I would just project you out five years. It gives you a little bit of a vision to say, this is what we pray that God will do in this city as we live out who we say we want to be. And then step four would be, what are we going to do in 2015 in order to be who we said we were going to be. And when I got to Sojourn Church five years ago, we had about, I don't know, 1,600, 1,700 people. And Daniel and I were both preaching five times on a Sunday. And, it, man, you, after you preach three times on Sunday morning, go home for the afternoon, and I'm not even joking to be funny here, <laughs> you cry and say, I can't go back tonight. <laughs> I can't do it. I mean, there was a couple times when I just thought, I just can't go back and preach. And people at the 5 o'clock service are 90% dead anyways. It doesn't matter how funny you are or they're just dead. I mean, the 5 o'clock service, you're going to quit ministry because you're a bad preacher. And at the 7 o'clock service, you're like Elvis. 
You know, because, I mean, the 7 o'clock service, people are sitting on the floor, and people are crying, and hands are in the air, and you're like, I'm such a good preacher, you know, and at the 5 o'clock service, you're like, why did I get into ministry? I should have been an accountant, you know, and so, so but after, after a while of that, we, we started another campus, and we, uh, we had like 300 people coming to that campus, and I finally went to Daniel and said, look, this is crazy. I'll preach over at the east side. You preach in Midtown, and then we'll split up the evenings. We're going to preach the same text. We'll figure out what we're going to preach. And so I, I went over there and started preaching, and it grew. We grew up three, four, about 500 people. And don't be, those numbers, that's all context. It's all Louisville. And so anyways, you're like, how'd you grow so fast? Because it's Louisville, and it's Sojourn Church and all that. So, but I realized at one point, um, membership is a pretty big deal to us. Because we, if a person hasn't raised their hand and said, I'm here, shepherd me, care for me, pull me back in if I go off the track, you know, then we have no real way to do that. So I realized at one point, we have 500 people coming here and like 100 members. That's not good. And so I, I, I grabbed my team and, I, and we, we, we walked through this process. And one of our goals was we're going to add 150 members in 2012. That's a tangible goal. Now, why is that? It was all based in our core values and vivid description. It wasn't like we just want more members so we can brag. We felt like in our membership process, we know that a person has embraced the gospel. We know that they've been baptized. We know that they're now giving. I talked about this yesterday in the 100 to 200 track. And so the more people we bring into membership, the more people that have raised their hand and said, I'm a part of the family. Care for me, shepherd me, counsel me. I'll participate, I'll serve. So we set a goal of 150 new members in 2012 or whatever, whatever year it was. And then I went to my team, and I had a, a guy who worked for me now who's an executive pastor. Worked for me then. He's now the executive pastor. His name's Jeremy Linneman. I said, Jeremy, you have to build a plan to backtrack what we're going to do to get 150 members this year. That was our goal. Tangible, measurable, specific. So we decided we need to have four membership classes, one a quarter. Now, if we're going to get 150 members this year, we've got to get at least 250 people to those membership classes because they're not all going to become members. So then we have to get 65 people to each membership class. Jeremy, your job is to figure out how we can get 65 people to every membership class. Now, that might sound really businessy and pragmatic, but the end goal is that we want to shepherd people. And so, uh, look, you want to come up with four or five tangible goals for 2015 or think projects. And the question is, what are we going to do in order to be? All right, you've said who you're going to be in core values and vivid description. We're going to be this. We're going to be this. We're going to be known for this. What are we going to do in order to be? Write four or five goals. And, and, I, and I tell people, look, if goals are 100% achievable, probably haven't reached far enough. And if it's 40% achievable, you're going to need a sabbatical because you're overly tired and working too hard. So when you set a goal, make it so it's not super easy, like I'm going to preach nine times this year. Well, you're going to do that anyways. People will turn goals into me and they'll say, well, I've already done eight of these. Out of the 10, I'm like, then why did you give me these goals? So, no, I want, I want to see you stretch a little bit. So you have 55% of your members that are committed to community. And then I'll, I'll argue with them and say, are you really okay with that? If that's what you believe, then okay. That's, we're not reading the same New Testament. It's the way I see it, you know. But, but like, I, look, and I know things are complicated. Firefighters have to work weird hours. And we have a lot of nurses and students and military. I know all that. But that's not going to work very well on Judgment Day when you say, I just couldn't live in community because I was a firefighter. It's like, we better figure out how to get firefighters in community, right? I know you can't do every Tuesday night from 7 to 8.30 sermon-based small groups, but let's figure it out. 
And so you're going to set a goal and say, we got to stretch for this goal this year, but let's get our people in community. All right? Uh, number, uh, number four. That, that's just a way. You might say, what do I do in my four hours? Work on that, that process I just gave you, those four things. All right, number four is annual planning. Now, this is good for lead pastors and for staff people as well, all right? So especially for lead pastors, I would highly encourage you. Got lots of guys that I'm working with right now that are taking their whole team through this plan. Do we have the main points of this plan in here, Ben, or no? Um, all right, good, good, good. Go back to the previous slide one more time. All right, this is ideal for specific ministries, uh, like I, one of my friends back in the back, Sam Tikas, is a pastor in Los Angeles. I do a lot of work with Sam. Sam's walked through this with a couple of his specific ministries. So you might look at Sunday worship gathering as a specific ministry. Not the whole church, but Sunday gathered. Or community groups, or missional communities, or children's ministries, or youth ministries, or women's ministries, or some, and maybe you're like, that sounds really programmatic. Fill in the blank. If all you do is church gathered and church scattered, you can do it, you can do one for each of these, all right? And you can go to my blog and see more of a detailed, if you just Google it, brianhowardblog.com annual planning, or send me an email, I'll, I'll get you there. All right, next slide. I'm going to walk you through a few steps here. It's, it's six steps. If you want to write a plan for your ministry, it looks like this, all right? Again, this is working on the church rather than in the church. Step one is define your ministry. This, again, would be best done in a day away or in a couple of four-hour time blocks. These kinds of exercises are not like 30 minutes and then check email. and No, go away, sit in the woods, get a chair, have your Bible and a computer or a yellow pad and start to think. Let's, I'm going to keep talking to, uh, let's talk, let's say you're a children's director, all right? Why does our ministry exist? Why does our, or family ministries in the local church, why does this ministry exist? Why are we doing it? How does it fit into the overall vision of the church? And this should be a page long again, not like, you know, two sentences. It doesn't have to be 12 pages either. It's just, just take a page and think through what's the biblical rationale for why we're doing this. So, so I, I'm coaching a guy right now in the San Francisco Bay Area. Pastors, he's in his late 60s, pastors a larger church, and he's doing this for family ministry. He came back with a plan a couple of weeks ago, and I said, this is not very good. Uh, it was like a half a page. I said, no, I, I want to know, what are you, why are you even passionate about this? What is the scripture calling you to here, to here to? And so think through that. Define your ministry. Write a page there. Next slide. Next step would be describe the present. Um, where are we now? What's the current state of our ministry? Describe programs and numbers as they exist today. So lead pastor, if you're in here, you could do this for a specific ministry or you can take a children's director a uh, small groups person, worship leader, and say, hey, I want to I I coach you through a plan next year to have you sort of think through where do you want to go in your ministry. Let's start with why, why do we exist. Second, let's just let's take inventory. When I was in high school, I worked at Toys R Us for like three months, which was miserable. Wore the orange vest and the whole bit. We all have those embarrassing jobs, right? So, so uh, And we had inventory season where you had to take inventory where you walked around the store, and some of you have worked retail, you have to take inventory, who's stolen what, you know, most of the time it's the employees stealing stuff. So, so, so that's what you're doing. Where are we now? What's the current state of our ministry? List all the numbers. We have 12 small groups. Uh, we have eight leaders. We have 92 people in small groups currently committed. 
We, for, for, for basic training, we do a day training. You're gonna, it, that's going to be insightful just thinking through what you currently have. I just coached a pastor in Dallas through this. And in this step right here, he said, I didn't realize we have room for 140 more people in our small groups without even adding any leaders because I hadn't taken any time to actually think about it. He said, well, we're actually good just walking through this stage. Next slide. Diagnose problems. You like the D's and the P's. Define the ministry. Uh, I already forgot number two. What was number two? Describe the present. Diagnose the problem. So why are, why are we not where we want to be? What needs to change? What's holding us back? Where do we need to move forward? So, for example, with, with, with small groups, you might say, well, we don't have a good training for our new leaders. Frankly, we're struggling to find new leaders. Uh, we, we, uh, we don't have enough budget. Um, the people that we have aren't very good leaders as they are, so we don't have good ongoing training. So diagnose problems. All right, step four. Next slide. Design a plan. So in light of define the ministry, describe the present, um, diagnose the problems, design a plan. Where do we need to go? What are our goals for 2015? So this is something that you can write for a this is something that you can write for a specific ministry. And again, this is working on the ministry, not in the ministry. All right. So I, I can tell you. Anytime I'm leading a church team, and right now I pastor a church of 44 people. That was our largest Sunday ever. I just took over a church across the street from Disney Studios in Los Angeles with a $30 million facility and 18 old people in it. But I see five years from now. And I, I, I'm not going to pastor it long term. We're going to bring in a church planner that's going to take it over. So there were 18 people on, on the first day, and there were 44 last week. I don't know if that's church growth or just people are curious, but... but um. But eventually, when there's a team there, I probably won't be leading it anymore, but if I have a team underneath me, every person on our team is going to walk through this plan once a year. Every person. I'm going to say to our youth pastor, hey, if you have a youth pastor, right, if you believe in youth ministry anymore, okay? So I'm going to say, hey, let's, let's, I'm, I want to coach you through an annual plan. I'm not telling you what to do. I want you to write it. Think. You write it. Give it back to me. So where are we going to go in 2015? Set some goals. In 2015, we're going to add four new small groups. In 2015, we're going to add 45 new people to our small groups. In 2015, we're going, to, we're going to implement a new basic training for our small group leaders. 2015, we're going to change out our children's ministry curriculum. 2015, specific measurable goals. Next up, detail the progress. Month by month, January. I've written three blog posts on this, so you can find more detailed uh, stuff on my blog about this, but Chart your progress month by month, January, February, March, April. So many people that I coach skip this step, and I say, nope, nope, come back to me next month and bring me back. I want to know what you're going to do in January, what you're going to do in February. You've got all these great goals. We're going to get to next September, and you've never done any of it. So I want to see you chart your progress. Plan it out. All right, month by month, January, here's what I'm going to do. February, here's what I'm going to do. March, here's what I'm going to do. All right, lastly... Uh, plan your development. And I, the main reason I put this step in here is that if I'm coaching my staff team, I'm going to say, what are you going to do to personally grow in 2015? Now, what I do, this is I don't have time to flesh through this totally, but I'm just going to give you a vision if you pastor a larger church of what this looks like, okay? Let's say you have five people on your church staff. You get your five people together and you say, team, we're all going to write a growth plan for next year, an annual plan. You're going to do it for this area. You're going to do it for this area. Here's the template that you're going to use. Walk, walk, walk them through it. I use the six steps I want you to walk through. I want you all to take a day away 
Tell me right now when it's going to be, or we're all going to do it on Tuesday the 15th, and I want you to come back, and you better come back with four or five pages, not one page. I want some detail. I want you to think through your ministry next year. You're working on your ministry, not in the ministry, and then a month from now, that's the due date. You give it back to me. I'm the lead pastor, all right, or the executive pastor. What I'm going to do is I'm going to look at all these plans, and I'm going to, I'm going to look for holes in them. And then I'm going to meet with that guy on my staff, and I'm going to say, hey, this is really good here, but man, I don't think you reached high enough on the goals. Uh, your vivid description, like, no, you, that's the previous tool or whatever. You're, you're diagnosed. The, I don't know that you really need more money in the budget. I think you've got, we're going to dialogue about it. He's written the plan, he or she. I've spoken into the plan, and now I would say, now go back and make it better and write a final version of this. And then we're going to do a staff day away, and everybody's going to share their plan with each other. All right, so the whole team, here's where we're going with worship ministry next year, you guys. Here's where we're going with children's ministry next year. And then once a month, our team's going to meet together, and everybody's going to report on their progress. Now, what you have now is you have the whole team is managing each other, which is a way better structure than top-down, uh, because an extrovert will fail in front of you over and over and over again, but will never fail in front of the whole team. Ever need to fire somebody, and everybody in your staff's like, how do you need to fire that person? They're amazing because they've only failed in front of you and nobody else has ever seen it. When the whole team's pulling together on this, then you've got a whole team doing it together. becomes a great way for a church staff to move forward, which is why I like plan your development, because all five or six people on your team have written down. They basically said, here's what I'm going to do to grow in 2015. Here's what I'm going to do to personally grow. Here's some books I want to read. Here's a class I want to take. Here's a conference I want to go to. Annual planning, all right? Uh, five. Man, I don't even know if I have time for this. I think so. Step five is outreach planning. Okay, if you should write this down. I wrote a couple of blog posts on this, and I want to encourage you to read them because I think they're good. Um, one of them is called No One Even Knows Your Church Exists. All right? No one even knows your church exists. This is working on the church, not in the church. Um. People come to me constantly and they say, our church isn't growing. We're 75 people and we're stalled. We're 800 people and we're stalled. It never changes. Even if you're 800 people, you feel discouraged if you're down 50, you know? So that, that angst you feel when you have 75 people in your church, you feel it when there's 300 and you feel it when there's 600 and you feel it when there's 1,000 because what if 200 people don't show up? Everything's just different scale. So I, I oftentimes say to guys, do you have an outreach plan? Have you thought through, here's what we're going to do as a church? So I wrote this post. It came out of a coaching session that I had with Mike Brown in Los Angeles like eight years ago. I sat down with Mike Brown. He was planting. It's now called Soma Burbank. Uh, he's involved with the Soma group, Vanderstelt and those guys. So I remember sitting down with Mike and saying, does anybody even know that your church exists? And so I wrote this little process and basically said, if you are, if you are stalled as a church or if you're a church planner, or you're trying to figure out how do we reach our neighbor. This is what we're going to do in Burbank as we, as we take over that neighborhood across from Walt Disney Studios. All right? We're going to, we're going to, we've already defined a ministry target area. So you need to define a ministry target area for your church. Now, everybody wants to argue with me on this, and I'm not trying to be defiant or arrogant. I'm just saying I believe everybody that argues on this is wrong. I know that you're going to say things like, but people drive from all over the place. They drive from 30 minutes away because nobody preaches the gospel like we do. There's no gospel-centered churches within 40 minutes of us. It's amazing that people have even found Jesus in our city, you know, without us. You know, that's how church planners think. And I want to say, fine, if people want to drive from 40 minutes away, great. 
But have you thought about your target area? Have you thought about, like, and it, it, it all depends on the density of where you live. If you live in New York City, if you're John Stark, you're on the Upper West Side of New York City with Apostles or Logan, those guys, it's going to be a very tight area. If you're, I live in Orange County, it's more commuter-oriented. It's going to be a little bigger area. If you live in a rural area of 30,000 people, it might be the whole city, Paragold, Arkansas, right? Jared Pickney, some of you know him. It might be the, like, that's our target area, 30,000 people, all right? But it shouldn't be 500,000 people. So where I live, Los Angeles, Burbank's going to be about a square mile, 68,000 people in one square mile. That's it. Now, now you might say, wow, it's like that's, that's what we're going to focus on is that square mile. Now, our goal is to make sure, um, two, that we know how many people are in that ministry target area, that we know who they are. You can get demographic studies so easily, and then that every single one of those 68,000 people knows that we're there. I mean, think about that. How many people actually know that your church exists in your target area? Maybe not a lot. Now, I, I know years ago, Francis Chan in Simi Valley had 37,000 households or something in Simi Valley. He had his church go door to door and pass out handwritten letters to everybody in the city. There's not a household in Simi Valley that doesn't know about Cornerstone Church. Uh, five years ago, I owned a townhome in Los Angeles. We needed to sell it. We had four kids. We were moving, and uh, a little townhome, and it was time to sell it. We'd been in it for nine years, and we had five real estate agents in our church, and I didn't call any of them. I called a husband and wife couple, um, husband and wife team, who had dominated the real estate market in my neighborhood for like nine years. I mean, they were everywhere. They had a funky car with mouse ears on it. They were on all the bus benches in my neighborhood advertising. Uh, they had all these gimmicks, flyers at my door. They sold houses. They were a beast at selling houses. I mean, so I, and you know, I, so I called them. We need to sell our house. In a bad market, they sold our house in three days, cash offer to a couple from Korea. We were just like, this is incredible, <laughs> you know, that this house sold. You, you've been there, some of you trying to sell your house, going, is this going to happen, you know? Now, the reason we called them is because they dominated our neighborhood for nine years. Now, we probably, if you're at an Acts 29 conference, you have a high view of the sovereignty of God. We all believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation, right? But if nobody knows that your church exists, how are you going to be a part of the harvest? So, so, so think about this. Define your target area. Know who the people are. Who are those people in your ministry target area? And then what are you going to do to get the word out? This is a great use of your four-hour time block. Sit, in, sit at a quiet spot and start thinking about it. And brainstorm. Brainstorming is about quantity, not quality. Brainstorm 10 things. Here's what, and people come up to me and go, well, what have you seen work? Wrong question. I'm not in your context. So what, what do you need to do? I was just in Indianapolis with Eric Bancroft, Castleview Baptist Church. So maybe I don't know if any of you know Eric. Church of like 600 in inner city Indianapolis. Uh, there, before Eric got there, uh, they, they, were, um, they were really sort of, the neighborhoods changed. Before Eric got there, the, the Anglo people in the church just felt like the neighborhoods all changing, all these ethnicities moving in. They, had, they, they put, turned out the lights at night so nobody could use their basketball courts. They didn't want people coming in. Huge piece of property in the inner city. Eric got there, and Eric felt like, no, 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 we're, we're opening all of this up. So at night, they open up all the basketball courts, and they deliver food to all the kids that are playing basketball. They show up with pizzas every night. You come out, and there are hundreds of people. Like, that's a way to get the word out. We're Castleview Baptist Church. We're in the middle of the city. You might go, we're, 
we're going to go door to door. We, we went door to door and passed out 7,000 door hangers, which is better than direct mail because for 7,000 door hangers, it's about $200. And you're actually out in the neighborhood and you actually get to talk to people. You can say, hey, we're a church over there. We'd love to serve your family if we ever get it. So what are you going to do to get the word out? So, so outreach planning, all right? And then lastly, because I want to take some questions here. Um, man, I, I don't have a lot of time to go into this, but priority management planning. This would be another, and I wrote a blog post on this that you might want to look at. It's called How to Take Control of Your Crazy Schedule. It's the first thing that pops up on Google. It's the top of the top of the first result that comes up, how to take control of your crazy schedule. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I want, to, I want to have 10 minutes for questions here, but another great way for you to think above the ministry in terms of working on the ministry, not in the ministry all the time, is to just think through how am I spending my time? So this is a little priority management exercise that I coach guys through. Uh, make a list of the top eight priorities in your work. I already gave you the top 24, 26 hours, 10 hours on sermon prep. This doesn't apply if you might be in a staff role, but 10 hours on sermon prep, 12 hours on leader development, four hours on vision planning. All right, so you got 26 hours right there. But what are the top eight priorities in your work? Determine how many hours you need to devote weekly to each one of those top eight priorities. Steps four and five are kind of a parenthesis. Figure out how to hand everything else off. By the way, here's a, this isn't a part of the deal, but there are four kinds of things you can spend your time doing. And no matter who you are in life, I see ladies in the room too, it applies to everybody. Four kinds of things in life that you can do. There are things that you're no good at and nobody will pay you to do. All right, like some of you might be like, sing. I can't sing, nobody's going to pay me to do it. There are things that you're okay at, but nobody will pay you to do. Those things are called hobbies. All right, like I, yeah, I enjoy playing basketball, but I'm, nobody's going to pay me to do it. All right, but I like it. But I better not expect to earn my income from it. All right, third, there are things that you are good at that people will pay you to do. And fourth, there are things that you are uniquely called and gifted to do. Most people spend their whole life in quadrant three. Think about that. Especially, I'm a generalist, which, you know, so I can do like 10 things. I know pastors who are specialists, like they can preach their rear off, but they better, they, they don't know where their wallet is, you know. So it's like they can preach, but that's, that's what they do, and they surround themselves with wise people. I'm more of a generalist. I can do a lot of different things, not any of them amazing, but several of them fairly well. And a lot of small church pastors are like that. You've got to constantly be saying, what am I uniquely called and gifted to do, and how can I find other people so I don't spend my whole life in quadrant three? One of, the, of the, the best things I learned from Daniel Montgomery at Sojourn, and that church grew from 1,800 to 4,000 people in the three years that I was there. I watched Daniel, and he's one of my best friends, has been for many years. I watched him do almost nothing <laughs> in that church. And at first I was like, and I'd known him for 10 years already. At first working with him, I'm like, is he lazy? Like he'll hold his coffee cup out and say, hey, will you get me a cup of coffee? And at first I thought he would do it to me. I'm like, I'm not getting you a cup of coffee. Get your own coffee, you know? <laughs> But he, he would say to me, hey, can I borrow your bike? And, and I would say, sure, because we, we both would ride bikes, mountain biking, that sort of thing. Hey, can you drop it by my house too? And I would be like, come pick up my bike yourself, you know? But what I realized, and I'm, I'm, I'm making fun of him here, but, but here's the thing. What I realized is that he, he spends his time, every moment of it, doing things that he is uniquely called and gifted to do, and he does nothing else. And he's remarkably effective and surrounded by a lot. And you might go, I can't do that. It's just me and our 75 people. I'm just saying, don't rob other people 
of the opportunity to do things that you're trying to do everything yourself. You're out there on a ladder painting the church building. Pay somebody to paint the church building and get back and open your Bible and pray, all right? Uh, create an ideal week. Do we have a slide for that, Ben, or not, the ideal week? Yeah, okay, there you go. I'm, I'm going to give you this, and then we'll take questions. So I encourage people to organize their, their week into uh, 21 four-hour time blocks, all right? So you can mess with the, the times or whatever. You might be a real morning person, but think of morning, afternoon, and evening as a time block. Now, in Piper's staff manual, I'm friends with Scott Anderson. He's the Desiring God director, so I've gotten some of their stuff. And I got this quite a few years ago. In Piper's staff manual, they use something like this. And so you wouldn't think of them being the most sort of kingly, sort of organized place, but they've got some good processes like this. And so I first kind of stole this from them and then worked on it a little bit. But if you conceive of your week in, in 21 time blocks, I've got morning, I've got afternoon, and I've got evening. So create an ideal week based on how you're going to spend your time. So you've got, you know, maybe five mornings a week, and this is color-coded because I, I, didn't, I, I didn't show you all of it here, but, but cre create an ideal week and go, all right, I need 12 hours a week for sermon prep time. That's going to be three time blocks. And this is a business principle called time batching or time blocking. That's going to be uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday morning. That's when I'm going to work on my sermon. When somebody comes to you on Sunday morning and they say, hey, I have a doctor's appointment on Wednesday morning, can you, let's get together and have a cup of coffee. First of all, you should never agree to a meeting on Sunday morning. Never. All right? Always say, sounds like a great idea, but I'm messed up on Sunday morning. i got to preach. Will you send me an email tomorrow? Half the people will never email you because they don't really want to meet with you anyways. They just don't know what else to say when they see you. Seriously. They're like, we should get together because they're trying to break down the awkwardness of you're the pastor. Okay? So... So anyways, you got your, you got your time blocks. I, I encourage people, think in the morning, talk in the afternoon. You might have three morning time blocks for sermon prep and one for, for vision time and one for, for I'm going to work on leadership development. And you spend your afternoons, you spend your afternoons doing meetings and those sorts of things. I'd also say, be careful to not, you have to determine how many four-hour time blocks am I going to work in a given week. This is driven by your culture, your context, your family situation. You know, if, you, if you're empty nester and you don't have kids at home. I, we have three, four kids in three different schools. So I, from, from 2.30 to 3 o'clock every day, I do nothing. I don't schedule appointments. I go pick up kids from school. I just tell everybody, I got to help my wife. She can't physically pick them all up. There's once 20 minutes this way. So, so work it around your schedule and then try not to work more than two time blocks in a row. And right now you're going, wait, I work all day Wednesday and then I have community group on Wednesday night. Well, then give yourself the opportunity to take Thursday morning off. All right, so just think about this. Create an ideal week because if you don't exercise some level of control over your schedule, everybody else will. And then you'll meet with everybody around their doctor's appointment all week long and be working on your sermon on Saturday night. All right, now, just summarizing this and finishing up, the whole point of this was to say, don't just work in the church as a technician. Work on the church as an entrepreneur. And what I mean by, by entrepreneur is be working on where the church needs to go. And these are the kinds of things that you can do. Write a strategic plan. Pray. Write, write policy statements. Write an annual plan. Um, write, a, write, a, write an outreach plan. Say, I'm going to work on where we're going to go as a church in terms of our neighborhood. And make sure that you have a four-hour time block where you do this every week. All right? I'm going to stop, and uh, we've got five minutes before this is over, and just take questions Anything you want to ask about any of this? Yep. Do you think uh, community groups, or, or do you 
suggest making community groups mandatory for membership or for members? His question was, do you suggest making community groups mandatory for membership or members? Now, this is going to be based on my you know, conviction about community, but I would say, generally speaking, yes. However, I, and I, you know, I was a community groups pastor in my 20s for three years, and there wasn't a lot. I'm 44 now, so it was quite a while ago. There wasn't a lot of, there wasn't as much stuff out there. There was no Brad House and these kinds of guys, you know. There were guys that they were Fuller Seminary and you were, you were reading stuff that was coming out of South Korea and that sort of stuff, you know? So, so initially, we all define community group like you have to be in a community group. The Scripture doesn't command us to be in a community group, right? The New Testament indicates that we should be living in community. So I would suggest if you're going to require all of your members to be living in community, you have to broaden your definition a little bit. So I would say, uh, commu- you know, I, we, we define community really as three or four things. One, you've got at least three people in your group, all right? Two, you have a leader that's been through our training. Three, you meet at least twice a month. And four, you have three different elements. You have a growth element, you have a a care element, and you have an outreach element. Now, you you might be Larry Osborne like sermon-based groups. That's fine. Lots of people use sermon-based groups. We, We do it as well. But I would just say, if you expect every member to be in community, what are you going to do with the nurse that works odd hours? A guy just drove me. I had breakfast this morning over at another hotel with a guy, and, and the guy that worked at the front desk of my hotel drove me there because <laughs> I said, I need a taxi. He goes, I'll drive you over there. 75 years old, works the graveyard shift every night at the Homewood Suites. He's been doing it for 17 years, all right? Uh, so what are you going to do with a guy like that? He works the graveyard. How is he going to live in community? You have to be able to broaden your definition a little bit to go, we want to facilitate it. Then you're going to get into like, well, is BSF community? Will I work for Young Life? Is that community? The answer is no, not in our local church. Now, when people come and say, I don't need community. I already have friends. You can say to them, we need you. We need you to facilitate community for others. Somebody back there? Yeah, most of the places I've worked in have been like that. So, yeah, it's actually, and I coach a pastor, Claude Acho, in Boston right now that you might know is planting. So um, I think very little of what I've said. Okay, now I have talked a little bit in terms, you know, I have addressed larger church pastors, but if I go through these things and I go, okay, how would this apply if you're, and I know 10 guys in Boston, we probably have a lot of common friendships there. How would this apply if I'm in the inner city of Boston and I'm planting a church and I have 25 people? I would say, Spend four hours every week working on where the church needs to go, working on where the church plant needs to go. The second thing I said was write a vision uh, strategy. Uh, I would completely do that, like thinking through, okay, well, like why do we exist? What are our core values? What are we calling people into? Writing an annual planning process for a specific ministry? Probably not. You probably wouldn't do that in an in inner city, harder church context. And look, we're in Los Angeles, and so that's not Texas at all, you know? So... Um, uh, prayer, you know, completely entrepreneurial. And then in terms of the, the what I said about priority management, uh, completely applies in your situation. And then the one thing that I think is huge that I just coached Claude through in Boston, actually, is the whole outreach planning thing. Essential when you're planning a church and you're in Boston to go, because here's the thing, when you plant the church, there's a lot of people that are just attracted to that. 
they're, they're adventurous, or we'll drive in for that 30 minutes. We like the idea of reaching the inner city. Well, that's cool. Come on in and give, but we're about this neighborhood here. Okay, so I coach Barry Rager in downtown Indianapolis right now. He's got about 60 people, and uh, it's like 80% African-American, and uh, he's got people that want to drive in from the suburbs because they've read Tim Keller. And so he's saying to me, what do we do with these people? I said, bring them in, uh, allow them to give, and then clearly communicate, this is our vision. We're after this area right here. We're after this area. And so I would say this completely applies, like outreach planning in a smaller context. So when I say, like staff people, you're meeting together, most of this stuff, if you walk away with nothing else but even as a church planter, I can't, like you need to spend most of your time with people, obviously, but you got to have this sacred spot where you say, I'm going to spend four, five, six, seven hours a week making sure that I'm working on where we're going to go as well. Yep. Yeah, okay. Being a regional church or not being a regional church, everybody thinks that they're a regional church because, um, first of all, I think a lot of us are lazy. We don't want to do the hard work of going, are we actually going to define a target area and go after those people and evaluate whether or not we're making any progress in reaching those people? Second, it feeds our egos. I mean, I've experienced this. I, I pastored a church that grew to be quite large. Two of the guys on our staff were back there who are now pastors. You know, It feeds our ego when people drive in from 30 or 40 minutes away and talk about what a great preacher we are. So that's, that's awesome. I would say if you're a church of 3,000 or 4,000, Saddleback is in my neighborhood. It's like four miles from me. I have a friend that I just met with uh, who lives in Laguna Beach. He goes to Saddleback. It's like 40 minutes away. How do you go to Saddleback? Because Saddleback has this broad reach, okay? But if your church is under five, six, seven hundred 700 people, what I would say is, is it wrong if people drive in? No, but at least be accountable for an area. So we need, we need somebody to go, we're going after this area. We're going to be the realtor that dominates this neighborhood so that when God stirs the heart of somebody... We're ready to go. So that's what I would say. Now, I could talk a lot longer on that, but I probably shouldn't. Yep, right here. Yeah, this is all really helpful. Appreciate it. Um, could you talk for a minute on what have you learned about where people put this four-hour block? Because immediately the first thing I think of is like Monday would be a good day, but it's probably not such a great day, is it? I think it all depends on how you're wired. Some people wake up on Monday morning and they're beat up. I don't. You know, I, for me, I wait month. I coach a guy right now at Grace City Church in Wenatchee. He does it on Monday mornings because nobody bothers him on Monday mornings. And so I would say the best place to put this block is somewhere where you're not going to get thrown against the wall, the, the place where it's most likely going to happen. Now, here's the problem with putting it on Friday is that your sermon's not done. And so on Monday morning, nothing's going to stop you from, from doing this. Now, if you're not preaching on Sundays, put it wherever. I would highly encourage you to try to do this in the morning. Now, even if you don't feel like you're a morning person. Now, if you, if, you, know, if you stay up all night, I get it. But generally speaking, try to do this in the morning because it doesn't matter what you read. Most people will say your thoughts are going to be freshest in the morning. Somebody else.
Probably the easiest answer to that is that it's complicated. It's way more art than science. It's going to vary based on the size of your church, based on what you're called to do. I'm Look, every time I write a blog post, I get 10 negative emails, especially if it's on Gospel Coalition, <laughs> but I get 10 negative emails, and it's usually the bivocational pastor who's saying, how can you write that? I work three jobs. And then I write them back and I say, man, I'm really sorry, but I can't consider every conceivable situation when I write a blog post. I am generally, my coaching is a lab for my writing. So I get on the phone and coach a guy, and then I go, hey, four people have asked me this question. Maybe I should write something down about it. Because my wife sometimes is listening, typing out, because she works for, for our company. She's typing out, like, you need to write on this. And so what I would say is, here's what, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm thinking in the world of general principles. Generally, do you have an idea of who and where you are called to reach? And do you have any idea how to measure whether or not how many of those people know you're there? And it's really easy to go, we've got 800,000 people in our area and people drive from all over the place. Okay, I just don't agree with that, honestly. And I see it all, even in a regional community, I think it's fine what you allow versus what you emphasize. Well, sure, come on, come on. But you, you, know, you know what I just heard Larry Osborne say at Exponential? Larry Osborne said, the problem with people driving any further than 20 minutes to church is that their neighbors and friends will never make the trek. They'll never make it. So you, you, your church is 25 minutes away because you, we're these great preachers and you're the only one preaching the gospel. And I've had people say that, right? And it makes me feel good. Yes, I'm preaching the gospel. The problem is, is that when they say to their neighbor, want to go to my church, it's 25 minutes away, they'll come once. And then the next time they'll go, it's too far. It's a long ways. So, so I, I, that's about an hour-long conversation where I would say it's complicated. But I would say, principally, can you define a target area and go, we're accountable to reach this neighborhood, we want to make sure that they all know that we're here. I'll take a couple more. Yep. That's hard. You got to shut off email. You, you've all read that. I mean, you've all you you can't have the number pop up, you know, because that that red number pops up. I'm looking at it. You know, it's like, well, who is it? You ever gotten an email and it ruins the rest of your day? And then, you know, so you, you got, I, I'm a big fan of, of not, they say don't live in your inbox, you know, so guys like Michael Ferris check it like once a week, you know, I can't get away with that, but two or three times a day, not all day, not, so I think you have to, there's probably a number of things, you know, if you work in an office, close the door, if you're working at Starbucks and people see you all the time, put your headphones on, whatever you need to do to try to block out it's going to be probably contextual for whatever you can do. You know, um, think, thoughts crashed into my mind. I use, a, I use a little program that only costs $4 called Daymap. I've used every uh, kind of project management software, and now I use a $4 app because it's visual, and I'm very visual, and it organizes things in categories. It's just, a, it's just an iPhone app, and it works on the iPad. And, and so I keep that open. So when a thought comes into my mind, bam, type it out. Because you know when you get praying, and all of a sudden you have 15 things you need to do? So that's what I would say. Yep. So I know when it comes to leadership, strategic planning, things that it's missing. Um, so I'm familiar with Church Unique. Is that a good roadmap for some of this? Will yeah, I don't know, Will. He's at Bruce Wesley's church, you know, and Bruce is here on the board of 89. But I've read Church Unique, and I, I buy into what he says because Will Mancini's main point is uh, don't be a franchise for somebody else. 
but actually figure out, which that's great. That you're, you're, you're actually walking through my process of saying, of saying uh, who, who's, our, who, who's our target? Who are we after here? How are we uniquely positioned to reach them? We'll take two more and then call it a day because we're out of time. Anybody else? Good, that's a great question. Collaborative vision versus individual vision. Now, I've, I've done this both ways, and I've learned this from experience, okay? In, vision starts, and I'm not trying to give you the Barnum Moses model or something here, or Maxwell per se. Vision starts with one person taking some time and writing out a plan. So usually that's the lead pastor. Years ago, I got all of our elders together on a Friday night with a whiteboard. We're going to figure out where we're going to go as a church. That does not work. Try it. Like, I know it seems that people tell you to do that. It does not work. It's way better like this. And people will appreciate you better if you say, hey, I'm, I'm the pastor or the youth pastor or whatever. I went away for eight hours. I prayed about this. I worked on it. I wrote this plan. This is where I think maybe we should go. Now I'm going to give this to you five. We've got five elders here. Maybe you don't have any elders. Maybe you're going to give it to, to six or seven key influencers. I think it's pretty good, but certainly there's, there's going to be holes in it. Will you look at this and... Tell me, tell me if you think it's good or not. You'll get three responses. Some people will give you really good feedback. Make, your, make the plan better. Some people will give you no feedback, but they now feel like they've helped to write it. They own it. Some people will say, you're crazy and I don't agree with any of this, and you find out that you have a division there. Now, what happens is that then the five or six of you come together. You did the hard work and said, hey, I served you guys by doing the hard work of writing a vision plan, but now the, the five or six of us, we want to walk out of here. It's our plan, not just my plan. I mean, Sam, Sam, who pastors in Los Angeles, used to be one of our elders and walked through this process with us. And I have never found anybody that complains with that plan. Then, then when you go, hey, we've got a good plan for our church where we're headed. We're going to roll it out at our member meeting. Your five or six elders or key leaders can go, yeah, we helped write this. And, and, and you considered their feedback. And, and so individual versus collaborative. One more. Back row. Uh, what are some of the books? Before I toss out anything, I've got two or three in mind. Anybody else in the, that's here say, here's, here's something that's helped me in this way. He mentioned Church Unique, Will Mancini. Anything by Peter Drucker. Anything by Patrick Lencioni. I've read all of Lencioni's books. Say that again. Yeah, The Advantage. Patrick Lencioni's new book, The Advantage, really good book. The E-Myth, Revisited. I listen to books now because I, I drive probably four or five hours a week. And so I, 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 audible.com, you know, I subscribe to their plan and listen to books. I listen to three or four books a month. I just went back through Jim Collins, Good to Great. Again, it's a business book, but, and you might go, that's business, that's not church. But it's interesting when he talks about, for example, you ever need to let somebody go from your church? And you're like, man, it's going to be so hard for them. Jim Collins says things like to, to not let a person go and to allow them to stay in the wrong position because you feel bad for them is to rob them of what they're really called to do. You start to go, wow, like there's some interesting stuff you can read in books like that. Uh, I just reread The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People because I read it like 15 years ago. So I listened to it. You get to that chapter on seek first to understand. I know Steve Covey was a Mormon and all, but there's some good stuff in there to read. Uh, I haven't really finished Matt Perman's book. I wish I could say that I have but because uh, it's kind of hard to get through, but everybody says it's really good. Uh, what's best next? Yeah, so Matt Perman's book I think is really good in this. Uh, the Power of Less, The 4-Hour Workweek, 
listen to Michael Hyatt's podcast when he's not talking about building an audience or whatever. Some of his stuff on productivity is good. All right. Thanks, you guys. There's a general session coming up in 15 minutes. Um, I'll hang around here for about five minutes if you want to come up and ask anything individually. Thanks for giving me your time. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Questions. So you're talking